G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called. There is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Morning church, let's pray. Father, your word is powerful, it's good, it is true. It's challenging and deeply convicting to the heart. So Lord, will you be with us this morning as we come to your word, as we come to Esther chapter 4. Let it speak to us, let it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning City on a Hill. Over the last few weeks, I hope you know we've been in the book of Esther. And Esther's what I see as the Hollywood blockbuster book of the Bible. It's money, sex, power, corruption, murder, evil, plots, unlikely heroes. It's one of my favorite stories, full stop. And partly because it really happened. See, I'm a bit of a movie buff, and my favorite Hollywood trope is the moment in the story where the main character has a crisis of identity. When they face a choice that will change everything for them, for their people, for the world. One of my favorite moments is in the Fellowship of the Ring. The elves, the men, the dwarves, the hobbits, and Gandalf, of course, are sitting around the One Ring at the Council of Elrond. We get this moment. This is from the books, not the movie, just by the way. The noon bell rang. Still no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him, as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might, after all, never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke. And, and wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. The destruction of the one ring, the, the perilous quest in the hands of a small hobbit. It's a beautiful moment. We don't... We don't necessarily have such choices of whether to take the One Ring to Mordor, but we do face big choices. We, some are, most are small, some are life-changing. The decision to uh, enter vocational ministry over the last few years has been the biggest, Jacinta, biggest decision Jacinta and I have ever made. But as we come to chapter 4 of Esther, we reach the moment. Esther has a choice. It's a choice of identity. To remain in the palace in comfort and rest or to risk everything. To identify with her Jewish people or to slip under the radar as the Persian queen. Well, if you've missed the last three weeks, let me get you up to speed. Nine years ago, in the glitz and glamour of the Persian Empire, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, has thrown out his Queen Vashti in a drunken rage. Then a few years later, our title character, Esther, uh, is the Jewish orphan, and she's made queen after winning what is literally a sex contest. Last week, in chapter 3, we saw the cruel and evil Haman, who becomes enraged when Mordecai refuses to pay homage to him, as he's 
paraded around the city. And what's the response of a fragile man with an enormous ego? Genocide. He manipulates the king. It's a pretty easy task with Xerxes. And it's decreed that every last Jew in the Persian Empire is to be destroyed. All of God's covenant people. And so we come to chapter 4. The city is in chaos. Haman and Xerxes are sipping on martinis in the palace. Persians have an open kill order for all the Jews, and all hope seems lost. And it's at this point the story, it starts to slow down. So a tip when you're reading the Bible, pay attention to the progression of time, especially here in Esther where it's so narrative-driven. As time slows down, the, the author is telling us, it's calling our attention, saying, look here, pay attention, watch what is going on. So as the camera zooms in on our heroes, Mordecai and Esther will look at each of the characters, we'll look at the choice they're faced with, and then we're going to spend some time looking at us and the decision that we face. We'll work through three headings, the man in mourning, the woman in the palace, the exiles in the world. So, number one, the man in mourning. Mordecai has made his choice. Over the last nine years, he's hidden that he's a Jew. He's encouraged Esther in marrying a pagan and is almost certainly breaking the commands of the Torah. But when his ancestral enemy, Haman, is paraded around the streets. Enough is enough. When push comes to shove, he's no longer compromising. He's chosen to embrace his his Jewish identity, refusing to bow down to the evil Haman and saying, no, I am a Jew. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm one of the covenant people of God. I will live as God's child no matter the cost. But the cost, as we know, is high. By his actions, by refusing to bow down, he's jeopardized every Jew in the entire empire. And he despairs. He despairs at this broken, upside-down world. Look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. We get the camera-wide shot of the city, the sound of Mourning and wailing fills the air. The camera pans down to a man by the king's gate, covered in ashes, clothed in sackcloth. Mordecai's in deep grief. If you're familiar with other parts of the Bible, this expression of grief is not unusual. We see it in in the book of Numbers, where Joshua and Caleb 
mourning because the Israelites want to return to Egypt instead of going to the promised land that God has for them. We see it in Ezra 10, when Ezra finds out the returned people of God are intermarrying with the pagan, pagan Gentiles to the point of tearing out his own hair. And it even happened when Persia was defeated by the Greeks. So even they too tore their clothes in grief. So they know what's going on here. Mordecai feels the problem deeply. The wailing, the sackcloth, the ashes, it's the expression of a man who who grieves the world in which he finds himself. It's a man in a city that has turned against his people in a violent flick of the switch. A world where, where evil flourishes and God seems silent. British author Christopher Ashe describes it perfectly. Mordecai grasps that to be a believer sometimes means to be in a world where it seems as though believers have no future. And that the world seems to be going very fast in the opposite direction. It's to be a part of a world where there is oppression, injustice, and tragedy that doesn't seem to strike at the bad people. Instead, good people seem to suffer. I wonder if that's how you feel. When you look at the world that is outside of the walls of this church building, do you despair at what you see? Do you despair as you watch nations tear each other apart every single day? Do you despair when unborn children are killed? Do you despair when neo-Nazis parade around US university campuses? Do you despair when Christians are thrown in prison, tortured, beaten, and killed, all because of their love for Jesus? That's the stuff that makes me want to tear my clothes, put on sackcloth, and scream at the world. Evil flourishes. God seems silent. Sometimes to identify as a Christian, to to proudly stand as a child of God means having our eyes unveiled to the horror of evil that permeates so much of our world. But before you head down Ryrie Street, before you tear your clothes and despair openly at the state of the world, something I want you to consider first is this. Is that your reaction to your sin? Dane Ortland, one of my favourite writers, writes this in his book, Deeper. We will not grow, not deeply anyway, except by growing through the painful death of being honest about our own spiritual bankruptcy. We must see and feel our utter emptiness and innate rebellion and resistance in the presence of a God whose, whose infinitude of beauty and perfection exposes such sinfulness. Do you despair your anger as much as you despair war? Do you despair your your lustful thoughts and actions as much as you despair abortion? Do you despair the, the slander, the gossip, the swearing, the careless words that exit your mouth more than you despair horrific political views? 
Do you despair the idols that have taken the place of God in your heart as much as you despair the persecution of the saints? When I was filling out the, um, the big application over the last uh, few months to begin the pastor pathway, the most difficult section by far was uh, one called character. Uh, and essentially, I was asked to confess the sin I fight now, the sin I'm likely to face, the sin I've put to death, all of it. And it hurt. It hurt a lot. As I answered question after question after question, I despaired at the effect that sin has had on my life. I despaired at the pain that I've brought upon people, myself, my family, my friends, even just random strangers. But in the difficulty of it, it was a testament to the grace of God in my life. That even though this heart is is black with sin, by turning to Jesus and repenting, it is washed clean. It is made white as snow by the blood of Jesus who took my sin and paid the price for it. Christian, let me encourage you, despair your sin. It is a good thing to despair your sin. Let a godly grief of your sin draw you into God. Let it show you the beauty of grace that he offers. Let it change you to take a stand against sin and lead others to do the same. Or maybe, though, that's not you. Maybe you're feeling a little bit more like Esther in this story. So let's turn and have a look at her now, the woman in the palace. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. The camera pans from Mordecai and the city in chaos up to Esther's quarters in the palace. The noise settles, the mourning fades in the back. The music fades in. Esther's relaxing in her lounge, carefree. She's got servants, she's got friends, Jewish identity hidden. The Persian royal life suits her. It's a vast gulf between the two worlds. Esther clearly has no idea what's going on in the empire, even though she is in the palace. So when she gets news that Mordecai is outside the gate making a big fuss, he's tearing his clothes and wearing sackcloth, she goes, oh dear, this is really embarrassing. This is not a great look for me. I better better just, I I know what makes me feel better. I better send him some clothes. It'll make him feel a bit better and then we can just send him on his way. But Mordecai, he won't have it. Verse seven and eight, Mordecai passes on to Esther the whole plot All of the Jews are destined for destruction unless you intercede. Mordecai says, you're the only one who has a chance of saving us. You're the king's wife. Please plead for our lives. But Esther knows the rules. And I think more importantly, Esther knows Xerxes. His fits of rage his drunkenness, his willingness to dispose of a disobedient wife at the snap of a finger. 
In verse 11, she tells Mordecai, if any man or woman goes, in, goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. She's saying, look, Mordecai, I'd love to help, but the king and I, it's not, so, not looking so great between us. We've been married for five years, He's been testing other girls in the harem, and it's been 30 days since I've even seen him. I'm sorry, Mordecai, I can't. It's just too risky. It's easy for us to sit in judgment as we read this, but I warn you to be careful not to throw stones too quickly. There is a legitimate threat here. By law, it it was forbidden for anyone to approach the king without being summoned. Esther was right. There is a real risk of her life here. Xerxes is an unpredictable and cruel ruler. His desire for Esther is clearly based on her appearance and maybe the wrinkles have started to form. Maybe other women in the harem had started to catch his eye. There's certainly no shortage of them. Esther's fear is grounded but Mordecai is not satisfied. So here in verse 13 and 14, we get what is probably the most famous words in this whole book. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than any, any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. According to Mordecai, Esther's life might be in peril if she goes to see the king, but her doom is certain if she doesn't. But how can he know that? He's the only one that knows she's Jewish. Some of the commentators and writers have seen this to be a threat. That Mordecai is saying, Esther, if we're going down, you're coming with us. Whether it's a threat or not, Mordecai lives in the city and Esther lives in the palace. That's to say, he lives in the real world. Not the fantasy world of a royal palace where all your worries can just disappear like background noise. Mordecai is saying to Esther, this life is not a game. We need rescue. And unless we're rescued, we're going to die. And you're not free from the consequences. But there's something interesting in Mordecai's vowed threat. Did you see it there in verse 14? It's the closest thing we get to a mention of God in this book. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He doesn't say from where, or from who, or from when. But he trusts that God will stay true to his covenant that he made with Abraham. That his descendants, that God's people would continue forever. He trusts that God will deliver his people, even if he has to use someone else. He trusts that God is sovereign 
but that human responsibility is a part of how God works in the world. So Esther is still left with a choice. I don't think it's any coincidence that the first time we meet Esther back in chapter 2, we hear her Hebrew name, Hadassah. It's a bit of a subtle hint that Esther is going to struggle with the idea of identity and that one day she is going to have to make a choice. So it's in this moment here that Esther has to decide who she truly is. Up to this point, her life has been one of compromise. She's taken the path of least resistance. She's just gone along with the way of the Persian Empire. But when push comes to shove, when her people need it the most, when they have the risk to their lives, is she going to embrace her Jewish identity? Show her true colours as one of God's people? Or is she going to continue her life of compromise in the palace? Mordecai's made his choice. So what about Esther? What about you? Like Esther, have you compromised? Like Esther, your life has been one step after another of following the path of least resistance, of not despairing the world, of of not despairing your sin. Maybe the allure of the world is just too strong. You're surrounded by people every single day who who draw you into the empty promises of of everything that the world offers, of riches, of, of comfort, of success, of pleasure, and saying no to God time and time again. City on a hill, Esther has a chance. She has an opportunity to choose a different path, and so do you. To be the person who God uses to just convert your entire workplace to be a light of the gospel to your unbelieving friends, to reject the empty promises of the world and live with a heavenly goal rather than an earthly one. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he will raise up someone else to do that work if you don't. But maybe, and I apologize for the cliche line, just maybe you were placed in your exact situation for such a time as this. So are you Persian or are you exile? As we come to the third and final point, the exiles in the world. I'm sure you remember, Andrew brought it up last week, I'm sure you remember the time a few years ago when our church suddenly became front page headlines after Andrew Thorburn just identified as a Christian who attends the hardline church, City on a Hill, or City on the Hill, City on, uh, City on a Hill, His choice to show his true colours as stronger than those of the Essendon Footy Club made him and City on a Hill public enemy number one. How did you feel during those few weeks? Even the months afterwards? The conversations at work, at Saturday sport, at uni, at the gym? The question, what are you up to on the weekend, suddenly makes us tense up. Oh, you know, uh, playing board games uh, on Saturday and then uh, going to church on Sunday with some, yeah. Oh, really? Which church? Oh, um, City on a Hill. Yeah, that one, the one that's all over social media. 
In all honesty, I felt the pinch. There was a real temptation to just not mention what it is I do on Sunday morning, to not mention where exactly it was I worked, to just blend in with the world and follow the path of least resistance. It was a strange feeling, because if we're honest, here in Geelong, we just don't face persecution. Maybe an awkward conversation every now and then. So when our church is suddenly front-page news, it is a stark reminder that we do not belong in this world. It is remarkably easy to have a low-cost, low-effort, comfortable Christianity in Australia. And I don't want to complain because I love this country, I love this city, I love the opportunity that God has given us. But when we lose focus, when we get comfortable and we forget where our citizenship truly lies, we get lazy and we compromise. One of the things I find so interesting about the book of Esther is just how morally ambiguous it is. So often in the Bible, there are very clear distinctions about what is good and what is bad. But that just doesn't really happen in Esther. The characters we would maybe usually side with are morally compromised. They make decisions that are very questionable, even going against God's law. So I just just don't think we're meant to look up to Mordecai and Esther. That yes, they did some pretty amazing things, as we're going to see in a few weeks, but they're just people. They're just you and me. They are the people sitting next to you in the pew. They're exiles in a world that is far from their true home. See, I think we make a mistake if we look at Esther, if we read Esther and we go looking for moral examples. Because if we do that, I think we miss the fact that 500 years later, there was a man who did this perfectly. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, born in a stable to a virgin teenager. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself and was born in the likeness of you and me. Jesus, who who grieved the sin of the world perfectly, without compromise. Jesus, who didn't simply risk his life, but willingly and obediently gave his life to defeat sin once and for all, not for just a particular people in a particular time, in a particular place, but for all people, for all time, in all places. Jesus, who didn't stay dead, but rose to a new life so that we have hope that is everlasting. He rose so that identity might be found in, in not in who we are, our good works, our bad works, whatever the world wants us to be, but found in him. So he rose so that we might no longer be strangers and aliens to God, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus in whom we don't just have an example of how to live, we have a saviour who gives his life so that we can live for him.
the Apostle Peter, writing to suffering and persecuted Christians, he addresses them as elect exiles, a people chosen by God whose home is not in this world. He's reminding them that this life, this world is not all there is, that they have an eternal citizenship. Later in chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. At the end of Esther 4, the camera zooms in on Esther. The close-up. She's made her decision. I will go to the king though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In this moment, Karen Jobes writes of Esther, this beautiful young woman with a weak character is transformed into a person with heroic moral stature and political skill. Friends, if you have chosen to follow Christ, you've been transformed to live with a greater purpose. To identify with Christ is it's to be an elect exile in this world. It's to have a greater purpose than our own concerns and problems. It's to have a hope that goes far beyond our own death. The Christian life is, I'm sorry, it's just not an easy one. You will be asked to compromise every single day. So will you follow the path of least resistance and live as a pagan? Will you choose to identify with Christ even when it's painful? When you despair the world like Mordecai, when you, when you feel like compromising like Esther, when you feel like pushing aside your identity in Christ, remember these words. Heaven is my home. God is my Father. Jesus is my Lord. And every day is one day closer to Him. Heaven is my home. God is my Father. Jesus is my Lord. And every day is one day closer to Him. Lord, we long for that day. We long for the day when we will be with you, but here we are in this world, so let us not compromise. Let us recognize who we are, elect exiles, saved by the blood of Jesus to live for him. Let us resist the way of the world, the temptations, the compromise that so easily sets in, and let us live for you. 
Let us remember that heaven is our home, that you are our Father, Jesus is our Lord, and every day is one day closer to heaven. It's this, we pray all of this in your son's name.